Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with the odd and star-studded 1982 horror comedy Pandemonium. Praising Kane, I'm your esteemed host and guy, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is the Dirty Pillows, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's life right now? It's okay, Liam. It's not so bad. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's living in 2023 with its various ups and downs. Uh, at least when things are rough, I can always think, you know, at some point I'm going to be able to watch another Carol Kane project, and that's what I try to uh, base my entire life around at this point, just to keep things on the level. I mean, there are definitely uh, situations where on this show we get to watch some great movies, just true delights, because I, I don't know if people realize this. There's a lot of times when we have to watch things that maybe aren't fun, you know, uh, especially for uh, some of our other topics, you know. Sure. And so this is sort of a rare delight uh, with, with Carol Kane that there'll be stuff that not only do I not know what it is, but I'm you know surprised by how great it is uh i don't know that this week counts for that but we'll, we'll get into that in just a sec you know it's interesting one of the fun things about doing a chronological podcast about an actor's career is like we you think about it at first that someone says you know this is a carol kane podcast and you think about their most famous roles but then when you delve into it there's just so much like weird stuff here and there Right. And like this is this isn't so weird, this uh, movie that we're going to be talking about today, though it is a little odd. But like the next movie we're going to talk about is so strange. And just like over the last few days, I've started prepping for like the next like four or five movies that we're going to be covering on this podcast, just making sure that I have copies of them. And it's just such a strange variety. Like we've done like PBS specials and like live, weird, uh, uh, surreal uh, film play stuff and like there's going to be more of that stuff coming up because at this point in her career Carol Kane even though she is you know top billed in this movie and in the next movie we're going to be covering and, and her kind of uh, uh, mainstream fame is growing she's still not a very like famous face so it's still a lot of love weird uh, uh, you know all over the world very different tones very different uh, kinds of projects and that's kind of interesting but it's also it could be a little trying sometimes. It is interesting, though, because I wonder to what extent her casting in this movie is related to when a stranger calls or not. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. It might be unrelated. It might be a, a small influence. I'm not sure. Uh, before we um, continue with our pandemonium discussion, let's discuss a little bit of Carol Kane news. This this first note is doesn't seem to be uh, about Carol Kane at first, but we'll, we'll talk about how it relates. <laughs> we'll talk about how it relates in a second. Uh, actor, comedian... <laughs> Uh, Richard Sorry, Belzer. Leah Lee was just reading what I've written for him here. He doesn't know how it's going to connect to Carol Kane. No, I read through. I read through the whole thing. I know exactly how it is. But I do think it's it's it might be a weird for transition for people from like let's discuss some Carol Kane news. Recently, Richard Belzer passed away. Yeah, that's right. Did, did she kill him? What happened? No, 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 no. <laughs> let, let me explain. Let me explain why this what uh, this. I mean, obviously, we're all saddened by the passing of Richard Belzer. I know a lot of people are huge fans, not just of his uh, most recent role as uh, John Munch on both uh, Homicide Life on the Streets and Law and Order SVU. His most recent 30-plus year role. Well, but I think a lot of people also <laughs> like him as a comedian because I know there are a ton yeah. of people who only know him as that character. Absolutely. But I, I was surprised at the number of people I knew who discovered him as that character, then went back and found his stand-up. I didn't know. I remember his stand-up only because you'll, you're from Canada, so you probably don't know this. On Comedy Central, for a long time, they didn't have a lot of actual programming. So mm -hmm. they would just show uh, edited stand-up clips like all day long like it would just be reels of stand-up and so you got to know a lot of stand-ups from the 80s even if you were not old enough in the 80s to know who they were sure. and so like when he was known as a stand-up i was not paying attention to stand-up doug i was like 10 or 8 or something so but because of because comedy central in the 90s had not yet figured out how to make original programming there was a lot of stand-up to watch so i became familiar with him as a, as a comedian but uh, a lot of younger people i know also appreciate 
appreciate him as a comedian, even though they discovered him as his character. Uh, now, of course, uh, famously, he didn't just play John Munch uh, uh, on these shows where they where that character is from. He did guest appearances on all manner of shows as the character, whether that's The X-Files, Arrested Development, Sesame Street, which is kind of fucked up if you think about it, uh, 30 Rock, and of course, relating to our, our lady here, uh, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. However, what people might not know, which I didn't know until Doug put it in the notes, uh, because I didn't watch any of these shows, uh, was that Carol Kane played Munch's ex-wife, Gwen Munch, on both Homicide, Life on the Street, and Law and Order Special Victims Unit. I didn't know that at all. And I wonder if a lot of people know, it, it looks like it's only three episodes. Uh, yeah. Season six, All is Bright of uh, Homicide, and seasons 10 and 15, both one episodes uh, of those. That's that's really interesting, and I think when he did the guest appearance on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which I'm sure I saw that episode, even if I don't remember it, she didn't play his ex-wife then, right? Then no, there was no relation there? My my understanding, and it's been a while since I've seen this episode, is that they were watching Law & Order on TV. Like, that's how it... Oh, uh, yes. Or there's some sort of, like, procedural that they're watching on TV where he's playing John Munch on it. But, I mean, it, I, I, I like that one of the things that defines this character that Richard Belzer was known for playing is that he did it in multiple shows and that the canonically Carol Kane played his wife on multiple shows as well and actually appeared on multiple shows that they kept that continuity as well. Just very odd and very interesting. I, I don't know if I've seen the, any of these episodes that she's appeared on, at least at this point, though I have to say Liam, because I, I, uh, I only discovered this recently I went ahead and watched the first episode of Homicide Life on the Streets yesterday, just because it's been a while since I've seen that show. I, I'd never watched it kind of uh, uh, chronologically when it first came out. And I have to say, that first episode, look, you know me, Liam, a cab for life. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a very good episode of television, and it is very intriguing and interesting. I know it has a really good reputation anyway, but it, to me it's like, because it's based on David Simon's book, and then The Wire is right there, that it's it always felt like a step backwards to go back to homicide life on the street but it uh it's it's pretty fucking good it has an amazing cast and uh, i was reading up on it a little bit i know this is kind of disconnected from what we're supposed to be talking about but barry levinson who was the producer and he directed the first episode of homicide life on the street he was talking about it, how bad richard belzer was when he came in to do his audition for it and then he they they told him to go home and and prepare again and try it again and he came back in and he was still really bad but i tell you he's great in that first episode yeah well <laughs> it's I, weird it's just weird because like he was just doing bit parts for what like 15 20 years he was just yeah, a stand just yeah. a stand he was a stand-up comedian and then he walks into this dramatic role which has a kind of comedic bent to it and it become it defines him for 30 years yeah it really became what people knew him for and i i think there's something appealing about the character you know i haven't watched a lot of uh Law and Order SVU. I have watched some. I mean, I feel like you you can't be of a certain age and not have watched at least a few episodes of Law and Order, right? It sure. Was just, it was on TV all the time, and I always appreciated. I felt like his character John Munch was always the one cop going, "Are we sure this is a good idea?" Like whenever the other police were suggesting things that might actually be a violation of someone's civil rights, he was always the one officer who was like, "Seems like a bad idea to me." Now, granted. They often did it anyway. Not, there wasn't yeah. a lot of listening to what he had to say. But I always, I think that made his character endearing. That he was the one guy who, who was kind of like, I don't know about this. Like, it's so funny that, like on the, that on the first episode of Homicide, right near the end, he's talking about how he's thinking about retiring early to get out of the force because he hates his job so much. Right, and it's just like, and then like that becomes his life for three years. Yeah, it's like a character <laughs> note, and then it's like that's that note carries him. <laughs> <clears throat> which I, I don't want to suggest is inaccurate. There probably are plenty of people, not just police officers, who like year five are like, maybe I don't like this job anymore. And then 30 years later are still doing it. But hey, my father was like sad. that. <laughs> my father was a police officer and he pieced out at, at 45, right? He retired in the mid 90s. Uh, what it was, and, and not to get into too much detail regarding that, I don't think he ever liked being a police officer. But in Newfoundland, where I grew up, the cops only started uh, uh, having guns, like uh, carrying sidearms, in 1995, and he he retired as soon as they made that change. Huh, that's interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yo, Doug, do you remember I Mordecai? You remember this movie I Mordecai <laughs> that we talked about? 
<laughs> we talked about it maybe like a year ago, uh, starring Judd Hirsch. Do you remember this? Yeah, we were a little cynical about it, to be totally honest. Yeah, yeah uh, for people who don't remember, I mean, I, m- maybe you're new to the show, or maybe it slipped your mind. Uh, this is a mo- movie about a, a character named Mordecai, let's say Samuel, 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 uh, a Holocaust survivor um, who is given a new iPhone. And then his life is changed because of the iPhone, which just at the time that felt tired. Now it's a year later. It still feels kind of tired. But here's the difference. Um, Judd Hirsch was in The Fablemans and is nominated for an Oscar. So uh, suddenly people are stoked on I, Mordecai. And this movie that I assumed came out and went away. I I, I didn't realize it was a thing that people were still going to have the chance to see. It has a trailer. Now, I did not subject myself to this trailer, Doug. But I understand that you did. I want to hear from you. Like, What did this trailer reveal to you about this possibly career-defining role for Judd Hirsch? (laughs) It's no need for us to be that cynical about it. I mean, good, good on Judd Hirsch. I know that you hate Taxi, so you hate any success that Judd Hirsch could ever have. And no, also, stop. I think we may have mentioned this before when we talked about Taxi, uh, the episode that, that, well, one of the episodes that Carol Kane appeared on. Interesting that they are reuniting so many years later, right? I mean, uh, Carol Kane plays Judd Hirsch's wife in this film. And yeah, that is the plot of it. He's an old man. He's completely out of touch. He has a flip phone. He's a little bit estranged from his son, played by Sean Astin. And this is just according to the uh, trailer that I watched. And uh, he gets an iPhone, and it completely changes his life. The idea is that it, it, uh, he then connects with a, um, a young woman played by uh, Asia Denea Hale, and she kind of teaches him how to use it, and he starts connecting with people. Liam, there's a joke in this fucking trailer <laughs> where he's talking to Siri, right, on his phone, and Carol Kane is hearing him outside, and she thinks that he's cheating on her because he's talking to this woman on the phone. And it is like, this is a movie, in case I, this hasn't already been made entirely clear, this is a movie for old people. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. this is... <laughs> it is based on a true story, I guess. It's him getting in touch with a younger generation because of this fucking iPhone. It is also kind of a commercial for iPhones. <laughs> it just feels like an iPhone will change your life, old people. But uh, it, it, it does, from the trailer, look like a sweet movie for old people. And, you know... Old people don't get a lot of sweet movies these days, so I'm not I'm not too I'm not too against it. I appreciate your defending this in the name of the elderly getting some respect because uh, unless they're sitting congressmen, I do think elderly people don't get the respect <laughs> that they deserve. Hey, look, it's... I'm not pro boomer over here. I'm just saying, in terms of movies, if they don't want to see fucking Ant Man, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. this yeah. feels like a movie that definitely would have went straight to streaming, except Judd Hirsch got nominated for an Oscar. I mean, I, I, I was, I wasn't even joking. I really do think like there is obviously an elite class of boomers that are uh, riding our planet into the ground uh-huh. and and will die long before the consequences of their horrible actions, whatever. But your average boomer, unless they really saved money, are like edging towards uh, 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 utter poverty and d- depravity, even if they think like that they're still going to be in charge of the world. Uh, and, and I do think like popular media, while politically boomers still have all the power, media is kind of like uninterested them except for as the butt of jokes you know uh-huh. though i will say the you know apparently there's that uh that f- what is the there's there's a movie about to come out with two uh uh, uh with uh why is my brain not working 80 for brady no 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 but it's the same <laughs> maybe there are more movies for old people than i thought <laughs> no but i was about to say those two two one of those ladies is in another movie that doesn't look like trash uh, 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 Fonda, right? And then the the two ladies from uh the show that's really popular on Netflix, they have a movie coming out. You mean Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin? Thank is probably you. who you're talking about. Yes, and they have a. Yeah. Mo- I thought they had a movie coming out that doesn't look like it's a monster, like a horrible thing. So they they have a different non eighty for Brady movie. Yes, <laughs> I'll find out. I'm right here. I'm looking at Jane I thought, Fonda's. I thought that was right. I thought that was right. I could be wrong, but I when they when they brought up 80 for Brady on Linoleum Knife, they I believe their recommendation was wait for the other movie to come out with uh, with what's her name. Well, I'm I'm looking at Jane Fonda's Wikipedia. Did you know about this Vietnam thing? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, she's in a movie uh, for for this year. All that's listed is Book Club: The Next Chapter. Oh, um, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Sorry that I'm I'm trying to defend boomers, and I'm like, ah, this is a all, sequel. All boomer actors are the same. 
Diane Keaton is in this one with her. Maybe, maybe there's a television. I don't know. Maybe you're making it up, or maybe you're getting confused, Liam. Any of these things are possible. It's it is entirely possible, and I apologize for not not keeping my boomer actors straight. I, I you know whatever. But speaking of boomer actors, a lot of them are in this movie Pandemonium that we're going to talk about here <laughs> in a sec. <laughs> Just right after the break. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk to you about 1981's Pandemonium. We'll be right back. Never before has one motion picture dared to bring to the screen. Uh, Which way to the cheerleader camp? Pandemonium! Give me a P! I'm gonna have fun! I'm gonna wear makeup! I'm gonna go out with boys! I'm gonna sleep with truck drivers! Give me an A! When you're away at camp, don't ever touch yourself. Or you'll go blind. Son! Son! Give me an N! Always. I fold. Too rich for my blood. Give me a... I'm Sergeant Reginald Cooper of the Royal Canal of Menades. Give me a moe. Mm. Mm. Oh! Ow! Oh. Give me an E-O! Stewardess, my coffee is cold. A former high school student who always wanted to be a cheerleader decides to reopen the cheerleading program at her former high school after years of closure for being targeted by a serial killer. It's 1981's Pandemonium, uh, directed by Alfred Soleil, uh, who uh, unfortunately passed away last year, uh, February actually last year, so very, very recently, uh, uh, about a year ago. Um, better known for directing uh, Alice Sweet Alice from 1976, a classic horror film, one that uh, if you like things that are upsetting, I think that, I don't know how you feel about Alice Sweet Alice, <laughs> but that is an upsetting movie in it's the best great. in the best way, in the best way, right? It's terrific. Um, it's so weird that the, someone who made a great horror film right. made a movie that was a parody of horror films right. that seemed to not know anything about horror films. <laughs> yeah, well, and this movie was basically the end of his uh, directing career. He went on to do more production design stuff, uh, working uh, on shows like Veronica Mars and Castle. Two movies, I got to admit, I two movies, two television shows, I got to admit, Doug, I've seen like every episode of. So apparently this, this guy's creative output continued to be a part of my life. You watched all of Castle? I watched a lot more of Castle than I could justify to anyone. Interesting. Listening. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I'm not I think, knocking it. I, 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 I just. I mean, like everyone loves Veronica Mars, but I don't hear a lot of people talking. about I think Castle. it was. I, I, I put Castle with House as a hyperfixation thing when I would be stressed out and I needed to turn my brain off. Those shows were just something that, like, I don't know. I needed to like not think. Granted, I've tried to rewatch them out of nostalgia, and I can't even watch an episode. They drive me crazy now. So I don't know why they for a while. And I say every episode. That's not really true, but it was a bit of an obsession for a little bit. Uh, so you like House and Castle? Maybe you just have some sort of building fetish. I'm not gonna lie. I started watching House because I was going to Princeton Seminary, and the Princeton University Student Center is the is the outdoor set shot oh, for the hospital, and I thought that was so stupid that I started. Started watching the show, and then I got sucked in for like not the whole run, but a few seasons. I, I watched it. I think it was already, <laughs> I think it was on TV at the time, but I only watched the older seasons because I could get them from Netflix. But uh, back to what we're talking about here, uh, written by Jamie Barton Klein. Uh, his only other writing uh, was a TV adaptation of Treasure Island in 1994, um, and Richard Whiteley, one of the writers of Rock and Roll High School, one of my mm-hmm. like all time favorite movies. Uh, and yet, here we go with Pandemonium. Uh, also was a producer and writer on Michael Moore's TV Nation TV show. Uh, and then was also credited for writing on shows like Roseanne, Roswell, Space Above and Beyond. Uh, that last one I've never even heard of before in my life. It was only um, a one-season sci-fi show in the 90s. But he, a lot of his later work, uh, written work, is on sci-fi TV shows, which, uh, I don't know, maybe he's just a genre fan generally. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so this movie uh, features... Uh, Actors like Tom Smothers, Carol Kane, obviously, Paul Rubens, in in a role that I think might be the one highlight of the movie for me. Very uh, much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eve Arden, Candace Azara, Eileen Brennan, Judge Reinhold, Kay Ballard, Donald O'Connor, Tab Hunter. 
uh, you know, it's a, it, it, oh, and Phil Hartman apparently, which I did not notice. Yeah, he I'm shows up for here. just one really quick sequence. You can recognize that voice from anywhere. And uh, yeah, so just because I don't have it in the notes generally, the, just like with Eating Raul, which we talked about on the latest episode of Bartell Me Something Good, a lot of the supporting roles in this film are uh, were made up of the Groundlings uh, group, like the, the different improv actors. That includes Paul Rubens, who we talked about briefly on that, and um, John Paragon, who has a memorable role in Eating Raul. He's here as well as uh, someone trying to kidnap the the uh, warden of the <laughs> of the prison. Yeah, totally. I, I, I don't know him, but I definitely recognized him from Eating Raul, but... Did you recognize that David Lander uh, is in this as well? He, he he played Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley, who wasn't in the episode of Laverne and Shirley that we actually watched with Kelly. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I I did. It's So am I wrong? It, I know he's in the part where he's touring around the tourists uh, while they're trying yes. to do the thing. Is he in it other than that scene? Yes. And when she – when the um, – the person who's going to be running the cheerleading school when she first arrives, yes. Yes, she encounters him and his his mother. I think it's supposed to be, but yeah, not yeah, that okay. it fucking matters. Anyway, yeah, none of this. They also show up at the very end of the movie at on the football field. Sure, uh, this is Jesus. I I do have memories of this movie. <laughs> uh, this movie actually went into production under the working title Thursday the Twelfth, uh, which I you know is this was this. Before or after Saturday the 14th? After uh, Saturday the 14th. Or it came out right around the exact same time. Right around the time that a bunch of these horror kind of satires and horror parodies were coming out. Things like Student Bodies, Full Moon High. I mean, just a lot at that time. And I have to say, most of them are absolute garbage. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a shame how few of these sort of... It seems to me that horror is ripe for parody. Sure. And it's a bummer how many horror parodies are just utter garbage trash just people who don't seem to understand what it is they're making fun of to a large extent um and they were are... really in the midst like like slashers were so omnipresent even mm-hmm. at 81 mm-hmm. 82 right you just think that that would be like like the conventions that scream would make fun of in the mid 90s they were already there it's not like there were but you just needed to know the genre and it feels like except for maybe student bodies which definitely plays on those tropes a little bit and is i think is the best of all of those anyway uh, and even that is a very uneven movie. Like it feels like the people who made these movies just don't like those kind of movies, or at least they didn't care enough yeah. to put the time in. Uh, as I said uh, previously, this is the last feature film that Soleil directed. Uh, it was also uh, the last feature in which Eve Arden appeared, which I think is interesting. Uh, there's going to be a lot to say here in some ways, but there's also maybe not so much. But we should probably start with the most obvious question, Doug. What did you think of Pandemonium? I'm assuming this is the first time that you've seen the film, or did you have some uh, history with this movie? I'd seen the trailer, uh, and it was certainly a movie... I was aware of. Somebody said on Twitter that they always got this movie, like when they told people they had memories of seeing it when they were young, and when they told people about it, people were like, oh, you're talking about Student Bodies, or you're talking about Wacko, and it's neither of those two films. It is a third other thing. Um, and I was excited, as you could probably tell on our last episode, when we talked about that we were going to be watching this next. I knew that Vinegar Syndrome had put it out. I knew that the cast had a lot of really recognizable faces, a lot of fun actors in it, even outside of Carol Kane. And frankly, if you go over to Letterboxd, there's a lot of very positive, like, four-star reviews for this. People talking about how they had low expectations, but it's goofy and fun. And it is goofy. It is corny. But I have to say, Liam, it is not funny. It is a unfunny movie. In a really weird kind of way at times. Like, it seems to think it's being fucking hilarious. But it's hard to explain why they would think the things that are happening are funny. Like, just going down to, like, the core of it. When people think about this movie, if they know anything about it, they probably think about Tom Smothers as a Canadian Mountie in it, right? And it's an unexplained thing. And he has a horse. And he's on the horse. And, like, that's... The joke is he's a Mountie and he says oot and stuff like that instead of out. Um... Maybe, I don't know if listeners think I just said the same thing twice just then. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the joke is he's, he's a Mountie. And that's and he has a horse. And that is the joke. There's nothing else on top of it. I mean, there's a few other things where it's like he's treating the horse like a person, that sort of thing. But it's not inherently funny. But the movie thinks, and that's really, I think, what we're getting at. They th- It thinks that certain ideas are inherently funny. It thinks that a milk bath where someone has cookies is inherently funny. It thinks that someone who's obsessed with brushing their teeth is inherently funny. And it's just like, it's quirky, but it's not funny. So when a few funny things do happen in the movie, but that just kind of 
shines a light on the fact that overall it is not a very funny movie whatsoever, even though it has funny people in it. And uh, and the other thing is, of course, and I've, I've already kind of alluded to it a few times. It's supposed to be a horror parody, but it's not right. It's it it's not really a slasher parody. It, there is someone trying to kill these people, but it doesn't look or feel in any way like Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth or any of the other movies that were popular at that time period. It's it seems like it's just it wants to be like a second rate Mel Brooks movie, and we've already seen some of those even on this very podcast, and those are rough, man. It, I'd be surprised. I mean, I'm, I was a little surprised that Dom DeLuise does not show up at some point. Yeah, it does feel very much like uh, at any moment Tom DeLuise is going to show up or just like a guy in a gorilla suit is going to run out and grab one of the girls and run off or something. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's okay. While I do agree with you that this movie at many moments doesn't feel like it gets horror. There's a couple of things where I, you know, there's a few direct references to other horror films that I did appreciate. Uh, And I I do like... uh, uh, you know the the whole idea where Carol Kane's character is basically a version of Carrie, right? But this is a version of Carrie that like can't wait to get to camp and screw, right? Like yeah. I think I can't think, wait to use her diaphragm. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> I think there's something about that that could be very funny. Um, By the but, way, that the fact that she has those kind of Carrie powers, it's mentioned at the beginning. It's mentioned at the end, and then there's like a 45 minute moment where it's like not even, yeah, it's not, not even a suggested, thing. right? And I, I, that's okay. I think my problem with the movie is a few things. One is this is definitely a movie where the idea that there needed to be a through plot to pull the whole thing together, right? That was out the window. This is a series of gags, and a lot of those gags they might have come up with that shit on set, right? Like there are times where the idea that two different people sat in a room and wrote this script. I don't know if I believe that, Doug. Like, yeah. I don't, I, I just feel like a lot of this shit, they just made it up as they went along because it feels so haphazard. The other aspect is um, the level of physical comedy that this movie thinks is really funny is frustrating in a world where we already have so many Three Stooges movies. At this point, it's 1981, <laughs> right? And you have descendants of the Stooges over 30 to 40 to maybe whatever years, right, of cinema. And we're still doing some of the same gags without any innovation, without any, like, new idea thrown in. And then the rest of the jokes are just kind of like puns, random kind of uptight sex jokes, you know. And then, uh, and I guess this is to its credit that a comedy from 1981 only has one extended racist sequence, right? That there's really yeah. just one section that is unapologetically racist. But still, it's such a long part of the movie and 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 uh, and relates to the fate of Judge Reinhold's character really that like it's hard to ignore how racist it is, you know? Yeah. And so like there's just not a lot. If if, if you're going to have a, a full-on five-minute super racist sequence in your movie, it'd be nice if there were some other jokes kind of mixed in. It, it, there just isn't a lot here that lands. Um, and I wonder if a movie that is this uninterested in the actual horror genre that it's lampooning, if it had less stupid jokes, would it still work as a movie, right? If it had – like there's no commentary on the world, you know, 1981 – there's a moment where Reagan offers uh, a young woman candy, I guess. And that's supposed to be some sort of commentary. Yeah, she makes a comment about it's like, I I know that you like work for jelly beans and stuff like that because that was a joke at the time. Yeah, but it's not, it doesn't even, it doesn't land in any way, shape, or form. And otherwise, the movie is uninterested in the the present, in 1981. Right. And, And it very much is set in, and this is not unique to this movie, but it's one of those 80s movies that's like, yo, it's kind of the 50s still, right? Or or maybe yeah. the early mm-hmm. 60s. So let's just keep going with that. And it's so, fuck, it just doesn't work, man. You know, compounded on the fact that everyone playing a teenager in this movie is it looks like they're 30-some years old. Yeah. yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure some of them are even in their 20s, but they don't fucking look like it. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the, the, there's just not a lot that kind of clicks. And, and it's not because it's silly, right? Let, let, let me lift up, in that case, Exhibit A. Hot Rod, you know, one of the dumbest, silliest movies that ever existed, but it, but it's funny, right? It's yeah, not. I, I like silly. Hey, I love silly. Yeah, right? 
but this is corny, right? It's like corny in a way that like a uh, like your grandfather telling you well, a joke. It's is. there's nothing new, right? Like a, a joke can be stupid if it feels novel and still work. There's nothing in this that you haven't heard or seen somewhere else. It feel it felt it feels like to me, right? Um, the only thing I'll say is I do feel like though it is a little bit corny the reveal of the killer was at least unexpected it wasn't something that i and when they did that i thought oh this is one of the few direct references to other horror movies that it, it would be something like that but it doesn't land really it's it's at least as an idea an idea that i was like oh i see what you were trying to do there Th- that could have been funny but like a lot of the jokes here it's not even just that they're poorly executed they're not even funny in the idea let alone yeah, the in the concept is, like one of the big jokes of this movie is that our lead characters all have rhyming names. It's Mandy, Randy, Sandy, Candy. And then the joke is that Judge Reinhold's name is Glenn. Dandy. Which, which you know, that, and then he reveals that. And then they repeat that joke at the end like it's the funniest fucking thing. Like, that's a central joke of this entire movie, is that their fucking names rhyme. I think you're supposed to groan. I think, it's, I think they think it's funny to do jokes that make the audience groan. Because I refuse to believe that in 1981... All these fucking high improvers snorting coke are like, ah, that's so funny. I think they're, they're it's meant to be corny for some reason, but I don't know why they thought that was cool. You know, does that make sense? Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I just refuse to think that all of these people were like, this is the funniest shit ever. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Maybe I, mean, I just again, can't relate not, it, to this. It, I, to me, it's like, this is how a lot of these horror comedies I think came about was. Airplane was this massive success in 1980. The horror genre was very popular at the time. It had all these kind of consistent tropes. It, it, it's a perfect target for an airplane-like movie, like a spoof. And all these different people were trying it. But it was kind of a wait. Just like a lot of those slasher movies were, it was popular, so they did it. It's the same kind of idea. It's not that they knew anything about what they were doing. It's just that, right. oh, this would make a good thing to, to set a bunch of gags on. And this is just a particularly poor example. But, like, we also have to take into account, those are the two writers, like, we, we, we already listed. I mean, the fact is, the Groundlings, we know that they went on to, to, like, Phil Hartman and Paul Rubens and John Paragon and Edie McClure. They all went on to do very funny things, but they weren't involved in the writing here. And so they can only do what they can do. But they probably knew that this was not a very funny fucking movie. Uh, some of them do, like, you know, they, they ham it up a lot to, to make it more interesting. You already mentioned that Paul Rubens is probably the highlight of the movie. I would say he's by and far the highlight of the movie because he's yeah. doing things that are a little off and strange and he's just bringing a strange energy to this that no one else, everyone else is kind of just playing it straight, especially Tom Smothers. And God bless him. I do love the Smothers Brothers. I grew up, you know, really enjoying Tom Smothers as a comedic performer, but he's got nothing to do here. Not a thing. Yeah, I don't think he brings anything to save this like Canadian Mountie gag, which is like dead on arrival it's not even funny the first time they do it and by the end it's just exhausting uh doug can you lift up any particular moments in this film where you sincerely laugh not like you kind of laughed at the audacity of how stupid it was but you thought it was actually a funny moment in the movie yes two moments i can think of that i the first one i just like kind of grinned and the second one i actually found funny which is the first one is in the opening sequence, which takes place back in the 60s, where the cheerleaders are all doing a routine with pieces of, like, vegetables, and then they end up getting skewered by a javelin so that they're a shish kebab. I did think that that was a pretty clever visual gag, and I thought, you know what? Maybe this movie will have clever things. I was wrong. The second thing is all about Paul Rubens. There's this dead-end kind of subplot about uh, Tom Smothers' character, Cooper, who's like a Mountie, and he has his horse and his basically his assistant or the person working with him is Johnson, played by Paul Rubens. They go and try to find the serial killer. It's really ridiculous. But what the serial killer is doing is he's killing people and turning them into furniture. Um, I, I just go with it. But there's a part where they're investigating and they find this set of drawers. <laughs> and, he, and Paul Rubens recognizes that it's someone who's been murdered recently. And then he ends up trying to get into her drawer. It's a very silly visual thing. But right afterwards, where Tom Smothers is just kind of like, what was it like? And he just kind of moves on. It is a very immature 
joke, but I think they, they both sell it in a way that's actually pretty funny. I also like in that sequence where Paul Rubens is holding his hand as they're as they're trying to walk, walk uh-huh. through the place. Uh-huh. Uh, but like nothing I think is legitimately funny in this movie that does not involve Paul Rubens. And he's only in it for probably five percent of the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, for me, his performance, not even what's written for him, but the way that he delivers things is what is giving me a little bit of of humor. I also got to say, and we'll get to this in more detail later, so I'll save the details of it. I think some of Carol Kane's performance tries to lift up her material because I think playing this uh, uptight repressed character who's trying to like get out into the world there is some comedic potential there i think the script fails her and it doesn't get funny but i can see where she's go i'm like okay there's this could have been funny with maybe a a little bit better writing uh the moment you brought up uh doug where the cheerleaders get skewered did you find the joke also very funny right before that where they come out of the locker room and their clothes are all uh, uh messed up because the football players have been ravaging them in the locker room was that a good Joke for you, Doug? Did you like that joke? No. But, I mean, you know, there's some bad taste stuff. Like, this is a movie, like, the poster is, it, it's tagline right in the center of it is finally a movie that is totally taste-free. The thing about this movie is that it's not a movie that revels in bad taste. The sexuality is very PG, you know, high school student style, tittering, you know, strip poker where no one gets naked, that sort of shit. And it's just, it's so tame in a lot of ways that the fact that it's occasionally very racist and very sexist of course those things will stand out all the more. It just feels like it's very reflective of the attitudes of 1981. Again, this is the thing that is so upsetting to me about some of the comedies from this time period is that the they will so casually refer to sexual assault, but then be scared to put any actual sexuality in the movie. Right. And that's like, something about that is such a bummer, right? It really just rubs me the wrong way every time I, I, I see that sort of thing to think like, oh man, okay, here we go. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think that there are plenty of comedies that are in poor taste that we still have to admit we find funny. It's not that um, I'm so fucking uh, uh, morally superior that whenever something you know violates my ethics, I no longer think it's funny. I wish that were the case. There are things that I'm embarrassed to admit have funny moments in them. Uh, this thing manages to be a slightly offensive movie that also doesn't have a single joke that works. Uh, we <laughs> we talked a little bit about about uh, horror and slasher um, parodies. I want to go past this era in which there was an explosion of these kind of movies. Sure. And take in the whole sort of run. And what I want to leave out of the conversation is horror comedies, right? I think there are a number of fully formed horror comedies that sure. take seriously both horror and comedy that are just unavoidably funny. Some people hate them. I think there are examples that prove them wrong that are well, give really... give us an example. Give us an example that you're talking about. Oh, for me, uh, Shaun of the Dead is sure. a, un, unavoidably a funny movie that has some, some maybe not scary if you're a horror veteran, but are at least uh, effective horror moments. Sure. Um, I, I would also lift up, and I know this is controversial, An American Werewolf in London. I know it's a yeah. sad movie, but it's a funny movie, too. I think yeah, absolutely. That, that is what it's doing. Um Doug, can you think of any horror parodies, straight up parodies, parodies of the genre that are still fucking actually successful movies? And, and we talked a little bit that maybe um, uh, Student Bodies isn't so bad. But I mean, over the over the run of, of movies that you can think of, actually successful, actually good horror parodies. It's hard to think of one that is wholly successful. Ones that aren't just like, pastiches or ones that play with the the genre like like behind the mask isn't a parody right the rise of leslie vernon but that's a movie that that is has like comedic parts to it and i think it plays with conventions really well and even yeah even like cabin in the woods right is is something that again it's all about conventions and but that's a pretty successful horror movie in its own right as well in terms of one that's like a straight up parody Maybe Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, something like that. But even that is going back to like 50s type sci-fi horror more than uh, slasher-y type stuff. Yeah. it's there are, there are ones I can think of that 
have funny moments, but in terms of, but oh, none of them are even as funny probably as Student Bodies, which even though I'm, I'm putting it as an example of a successful comedy, that's a movie that's like, half of it is, is almost as unfunny as this movie. <laughs> I know there are a lot of people who would lift up not the original scary movie, but apparently one of the sequels is actually pretty Oh, funny. yeah, yeah, right. But I don't know. I, I, I was so not into scary movie as a thing that when that became a new trend in like the, I don't know if that was like the late 90s or early 2000s, I never 2000s. I never tried any of those movies. I just wrote them off. So if some of them are secretly funny, I, would, I wouldn't know. You know what I mean? Like I just never really gave them a chance. So uh, for me... If we're going for just obvious parody, I don't like any of them, Doug. There's not one that I've seen that I enjoy. I have avoided them, so it's possible that there's an exception to the rule that if I gave it a chance, I would really like it. But from what I've seen, I don't I don't like any of them. I will say that some movies are not directly parodies, but you could maybe say the way that they function is still kind of like a parody so an example for me would be tucker and dale versus evil sure right it's right. not really a parody but just the way that it functions as both a horror movie and a comedy about horror movies you could maybe if you wanted to have something that was a let's call it an indirect parody or 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 some other kind of analogous thing um I think that movie is incredibly successful. I think it's incredibly funny. But movies that are taking more of this route where it's like we're obviously referencing Scream or obviously referencing Halloween or whatever it is, I just they just don't ever work for me, Doug. And and I don't say that to say because I'm above that kind of humor. Just for whatever reason they don't I don't find them funny. Uh I should I, mention I by the way, Liam, that like scary movie, you're right. I don't find the I only have only seen the first one. I didn't find it particularly funny. But there was like a secondary layer of scary movie parodies, rip not offs. parodies of yeah, that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah ripoffs. That's right. Like I know what you did last summer while I was, you know, I don't know. You know those, you know the ones with the really long titles. Uh-huh. Basically, um, uh, the equivalent of that time period of things like Meet the Spartans and shit like that, which are just like dead worst comedy films even like so scary movie had good actors and sometimes and funny moments and i remember it not being absolutely terrible or anything like that and some people really like those movies but there's another lower layer of those kind of movies that are just absolutely unwatchable yeah yeah i just just and it feels like the people who make them it, it always feels very like cheap and cynical that the people it's not like oh someone really tried with this and it just doesn't work for me a lot of times the movies themselves are they just feel like no one cared about them when they were being made and that's that's not really appealing to me uh, honestly you could do a podcast just on movies that parody the Blair Witch Project yes probably get like 30 episodes out of it and almost all of those are just unwatchable just like remember we watched that Paranormal Activity parody for the Eric Uh Roberts show uh And that was like one of the worst things that we'd ever watched for that. I got to be honest, Doug. I don't know that parody works for me. The only example, I've been searching my brain while we've been talking about this, of a really obvious, let's say goofy parody, right? Like an obvious goofy parody that really works for me. And honestly, I'm sure if I rewatched it, there's probably something problematic in it that I would be bummed on. But uh, when I was a kid, I loved I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, right? That was a movie that really appealed to me and I thought really worked. Outside of that, I can't actually name a single parody of anything that I'm like, oh, I love that movie. That's so great. I don't know that this is a kind of comedy that really appeals to me, Doug. I don't know. Well, I mean, the movie that spawned a lot of these, even going back before Airplane, is Young Frankenstein, which is a pretty effective. Okay. I like it. That's fair. I like Young Frankenstein. Airplane is a movie that I kind of like, but is now a bit of a bummer for me, and I'm not as stoked on. Well, even like Top Secret being a, a parody of, of you know Elvis type movies and Teen Idol type movies mm, and, and yeah. actually a lot, yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, different yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it can work, right? I mean, but the funny thing is, you know, the, you got Mel Brooks then making Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I don't like at all. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a nightmare movie. I, th- that's a good call with Top Secret, though. I think I don't know why the stupidity in Top Secret I find not entirely. There are parts of that movie that are not funny at all, but. A lot of the dumbest shit in Top Secret I find funny, and a lot of the dumbest shit in these horror parodies I find just tiresome, torturous even, you know? Yeah. It's also, there's that kind of that fine line. It's not totally fine. I'm sure it can be very easily defined to a certain extent, but like the the idea of a goofy parody 
that is not meant to be taken seriously whatsoever and, and therefore can't actually be scary while it's trying to be funny compared to some of the, the horror comedy movies that we talked about, something like Shaun of the Dead or, and, and, and Tucker and Dale versus Evil even, where it's able to kind of mix up those tones and be both effective as a horror movie and effective as a comedy at the same time. Yeah, and I guess that sort of in itself is not the same thing and has a different kind of like a, uh, even like reason for being, I guess, is the way to think of that. Sure. Um, okay, let me let me um, transition out of this into something else that we've, we kind of touched on, but I want to come back to, which is, you know, we talked about Paul Rubens, sort of his performance being one of the standout ones. I talked a little bit about Carol Kane, and you mentioned uh, Tom Smothers. Are there any other performances in the film that are on a positive note worth mentioning? Uh, did anyone, I don't know, kind of bring something to what they were doing that maybe made it not as painful? It is fun to see Tab Hunter show up in this. Yes. Uh, and then do the big reveal at the end. Um, I, I don't think that's... I know that you were surprised by it a little bit, Liam, but the very fact that it was a recognizable actor at the beginning... For just that yeah, second. Yeah, that's true. Think, that's fair. I was like, well, and also the fact that they made this big deal about this football player. It's like, what does that have to do with the rest of the movie? Well, so it wasn't that big of a surprise. It was more his motivation was a surprise to me. The like, I like for me, Judge Reinhold is always a very welcome presence in a movie, but he is not good here at all. Mostly because his nope. character is there's nothing to it. This is right a bit when it, I think Fast Times came out in '82, so that was what made him kind of like a well known actor, and then. Um, Beverly Hills Cop was 85. So, you know, around that time period, and the first Gremlins movie came out around then. So, I mean, his career had not become anything. So he was kind of a no-name guy at this point. Not good. Not funny. Uh, we do get to see the great Donald O'Connor uh, as Glenn's dad for just a second. But he, he he's doing a blind character, which is not funny, uh, with some really obvious gags. The, the, there is that one gag where he talks about that... Um, Judge Reinhold's brother is the black sheep of the family and they just cut to a black like a literal black sheep with a hat on which I look that is that is like the, the prototypical example of the humor in this movie so if that is if the idea of that made you smile then maybe you would enjoy that but no I don't think any of the performances really do stand out I will say that for those who don't know what to expect out of Paul Rubens' performance in this. By the way, I don't think we've made it explicit. Explicit. I think everyone knows who Paul Rubens is, but, you know, the actor who would play Pee Wee Herman later and, and all of the controversy around that. But he is a terrific comedic performer, and this is sort of a proto-Pee Wee to a certain extent. Not in his kind of childlike way, but in the way that Pee Wee would get annoyed a lot in his movies. And you can see those mannerisms. He's already working on that and would have been part of, like, his comedic toolkit at this time period. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I I knew this was pre Pee Wee, but there are definitely some Pee Wee related moments. It's not a full Pee Wee performance, right? But that that quiet sort of snarky to loud thing that he does was kind of a welcome thing in this movie, uh, uh, performance in this movie as well. It actually is not before Pee Wee either. He was already doing that character. Oh, it's like a stage thing. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. he was doing the stage show, and that started in 1980, so it would have been right around the time he was deep into it. And the HBO special that launched that character, even though it was a special that was for adults that later got kind of uh, toned down for a kid's show, that was 81, so it would have been right around this time period. Huh, interesting. Uh, I want to mention really quick, I... I uh, you mentioned some parodies that I wasn't thinking of that were actually pretty good, including top, top Secret. That struck a light bulb for me. I also want to mention they came together. I know a lot yes. of people hate that mm. movie. I fucking love it. I or love at least it. I, think... I, I did when I saw it. I haven't rewatched it. But when I first saw it, I thought it was amazing. Some of the gags in that, are, I think, are absolutely hilarious from uh... Uh, from the creators of the state, a lot of the, yes, the yes. people involved with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess you could say Wet Hot American Summer, too, right? Yeah, I, I do think that um, I wonder with something like Wet Hot American Summer, and maybe this is the thing, right? Wet Hot American Summer is so over the top and so cartoony that, like, I have to remind myself that it even is a direct parody of a sort of thing because right. we're in such another world that I don't even think about it as having to relate to actual teen sex movies, right? Like, yeah, especially like summer camp movies because the movies that it doesn't kind of overtly reference a lot of them. Yeah. It's just kind of a mood. It's as much meatballs as it is sleepaway camp, right? I mean, it's, yes. it's just yes. the idea of kids and camp counselors being in the same place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just too wide-reaching. 
Well, we got we got to we got to you know transition here, Doug, to the the point of the show. Carol Kane. I've already mentioned <laughs> that I think there's more to her performance than she's allowed to do, but still, that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's great. So I just want to ask you, like, what did you think of Carol Kane in this movie? How did you feel she handled what is perhaps not a, a, a great role? It's funny to think that she's one of the top billed people. In this movie, right? You know, because she just falls into the ensemble for the most part up until the end. The, the big thing that makes her central to the movie is a that she survives till the end, and that she has some sort of romantic fascination with Tom Smothers' character when they meet briefly. Of course, there's not much to build on there. They just they have this kind of like old fashioned uh, they break into song type thing, and that's the idea is that they have some sort of fascination. By the way, she's supposed to be high school age right or just like early college age and he looks to be in his 40s but let's not that's not even going to be nearly as as controversial and difficult as what we're going to talk about regarding our next movie so i'm not going to get into the weeds on that at least carol kane was literally in her 30s when this movie came out um i think she's funny like in the sense that she gives a good comedic performance but this is just like with world's greatest lover right where she does a good, good comedic performance there but the material just isn't there for her. I will say that there is one gag that I forgot that I did think was funny where she was they were driving in a car and she talks about, you know, she seems really pleased and it's because she's never been in a car with three people before. I did think that that was and she delivers that really well, right? Because she's playing kind of a naive, innocent, Carrie-esque person, though not quite as repressed as uh, Sissy Spacek is in that film, but you know, in that sort of realm. And I think that that is a role that she could play probably in her sleep. Yeah, I mean, that aspect of it, I appreciated. I think there was it. I wonder in a movie that was a little less, I mean, for a movie that's supposed to be uh, kind of like a, a not just a parody of horror movies, but also relate to like the teen aspect of those movies. It's a bit of a bummer how uptight it is in certain ways. And I think um, the joke that she is ready to like, bust out and live her life that really could have been explored a lot more but i think her doing this sort of wide-eyed uh this is all new for me character there's something there it's just the movie is uninterested in exploring she, she should have been the main character right she, it yeah. should have been like or they could have been two main characters right it, she is the face of this cheerleading campsite and then you have Tom Smothers on the investigation side. And like that would give, not that I'm asking for this movie to have more plot, but the fact is the plot keeps getting in the way anyway. At least if you made this instead of an ensemble of people that are not interesting, one interesting character amidst people who are uninteresting, I feel like it would give you more to hang on in terms of this movie. And especially because hers is the one character that actually refers to a horror movie. So right. why, you know, then you could actually make Carrie a central, you know, satirical target. At least there's something there. Like the other two female characters, the one character brushes her teeth and talks like a little girl. That's yes, the whole character. That's her whole character. And then the other character is mean and everybody thinks she's hot. And that's all that she does. There's nothing else to the character. It's just that she's mean to the other people in the movie. It's yeah. it's So at least in the idea that there's a backstory to her character, there's a little more there. But there's still no character there, which is, yeah. you know, in a movie like this, I guess, doesn't matter. But uh, I, I don't know. I we've We come to learn in, in her career that she is quite a skilled comedic actress. So the idea that she's so poorly utilized in this movie, but so is everybody. There's, uh, again... I guess you just can't keep Paul Rubens down is what it boils down to. <laughs> no matter what you do, he's going to be a goofball and it's going to be funny. Uh, everyone else in this movie is just held back by the dumbest script I've probably seen in a while. I think it helps Paul Rubens that he is a secondary character, so probably didn't have as much attention paid to, to, to the content of his role, so he was able to add a little more to it. I posted a clip on Twitter of my favorite moment from the entire movie where it's in the midst of a really terrible joke where he's talking about um, uh, he's basically not being invited to something and he's made, told to make a phone call. And he's like, they're going to have cake. Sorry, that was my Paul Rubens. And then he makes this angry movement. He just goes like, ur, ur. and it is so funny because it's just so outrageous and over the top. 
but he just sells it so perfectly. I mean, it's one of the things that maybe I haven't given enough uh, credit to Paul Rubens as a comedic actor because he's so associated with Pee Wee is that yeah. he's really just a gifted comedic performer, yeah. which is why he was able to make, you know, of that group of people in the Groundlings, and, you know, Phil Hartman had a great career. A lot of these actor, actors and actresses had wonderful careers that come out of that comedy scene. I mean, he, there was a time when he was bigger than all of them, right? He had his own mo- multiple movies. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, he was a cultural force. So, yeah. you know, I guess it makes sense. But still, all right, here we go. 1981's Pandemonium. My recommendation is avoid at all costs. I don't, I, I don't know that no one really tunes in for that. You know, it's just really about Carol Kane and whatever. But I got <laughs> I got to say, I don't like this movie. And it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, here's the big reveal to the audience. I own this on Blu-ray. Like, it's, yeah. uh, like this is part of my collection because I was so excited for this thing. And uh I did, I did not like it. You know, I, I'm excited for the special features on the Blu-ray, but that's that's sort of it for me. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just need to say, simply because, here's the thing. We watch a lot of bad movies, right? Yeah, that's kind yeah, of our yeah, deal. Yeah. There's almost nothing worse than a bad comedy, right? right. Because yes. it just makes you feel miserable. Because all you see is all the effort that went into it and all the failure that comes from that effort. If this was just another, if this was another slasher movie of that time period, even though I'm not a big slasher guy generally, but I've watched tons and tons of slashers, if it's bad, that's fine. You know, it doesn't kill me. It doesn't hurt me. I don't feel, uh, afterwards, I don't feel resentment towards it. A bad comedy, it ends up leaving me feeling resentful because there are so many talented people involved that have been let down by it. I think that's true, and I think in this case it's especially true. Um, so on our next episode, Doug, we're going to be talking about <laughs> Norman Loves Rose from 1982, which I, I apparently you're excited to talk about this movie. There's something you're really into the thematics of it. It's like really up your alley. Why did you, you know, go out of order of this, you know, chronological podcast and try to find this movie that apparently is about, uh, I don't know, uh, some some sort of pedophilia? Can you fill me in on this, Doug? So we're not moving out of chronology. This is the next movie chronologically. Uh, but I had, I've had i had a copy of this movie for a while. I remember reading about it a couple of years ago before we even started the Carol Kane podcast and thinking, what are you... Like, the plot summary sounded so wild and also so out of step with modern sensibilities in a good way. Uh, wait, wait, I should... Let me correct that. In a very terrible way. But also just like the kind of movie that maybe could only have existed in Australia in 1982. This is the Australian comedy Norman Loves Rose. Let me just read you. I don't usually do this. The plot summary from Wikipedia. A 13-year-old Jewish boy develops an obsession for his older brother's wife who is under parental pressure to start a family. The hapless dentist brother is not up to the job and Ditsy Rose encourages Norman's infatuation. While it never is made explicit how it came about, Rose eventually does become pregnant to the satisfaction of the various interested parties the idea is this 13 year old is going to impregnate someone who is like 30 and like that's the comedic center of this movie and it's presented as a positive liam this poster describe the poster i mean it's a kid staring lovingly at a pregnant woman uh it doesn't look great it doesn't look and the tagline is every woman needs a boy like norman oh man Man, I don't know why you chose this, Doug. I don't know why you went out of your way. <laughs> it's to it's pick the this next weird thing movie. chronologically. We had no choice. I'm I have to say, even though it sounds absolutely disgusting, I'm very curious about how they took this. <laughs> oh, concept. I know you are, man. I know you are. <laughs> oh, it's all my fantasies come true. It's Norman Loves Rose <laughs> on the next episode of Praising King. <laughs> well, despite this topic, please come back. We hope that you uh, enjoy the show. <laughs> Uh, we hope that we didn't bum you out by not loving Pandemonium if you tuned in to hear us gush. Some people really do like it. I think some people will be bummed to hear that we did. I'm sorry. I, I apologize to everyone for my uh, taste or whatever. Uh, thank you, though, for listening. We hope that you will tell people, even if you don't like Carol Kane, we talk about other stuff. You know, <laughs> get, get into the Jackie Chan show. Check out the Vic Diaz show. Uh, uh, look at our show about Alejandro Jodorowsky. We like almost everything on that show. I mean, come on. Uh, get excited. Tell tell. tell some friends you know uh rate review subscribe all the things that podcasters say we would really like it uh <laughs> doug if if people want to check out more of what we do both here and on some of the other places uh, on the network where should they go 
Well, first place is always over to Cinepunks.com, which has an array of wonderful podcasts and other content. You can also join up with the Cinepunks Discord if you want to connect with people involved, as well as uh, get notified about both the releases of different podcasts, as well as our uh, occasional online streams. If you want to get hooked up with that Discord, you can leave uh, Liam an uh, email through, uh, through the Cinepunks site or through cinemasmorgasbord.com, which is the central site for this podcast, which of course is an umbrella for lots of different themed podcasts, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as the career of, of course, Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, Paul Bartel, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Dick Miller, and so much more over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can find Cinepunks on all social media under the name Cinepunks, and Cinema Smorgasbord is on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Cinema Smorg, S-M- O-R-G. You can also follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm on there as well for now at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Yeah, who knows how much longer Twitter will even exist. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, despite not loving Pandemonium, I'm so glad that we got to discuss it. I'm really excited uh, for our next episode where possibly we'll both be horribly <laughs> offended. Who knows? Uh, but uh, please join us again next time. Until then, have a great night. Red, red.